today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 13, Steam Pressed. Last time, we checked in with the Whites in Battle Creek and saw how the city, with its new, enthusiastic, and motivated believers, was an immense blessing to the burned-out family. We also talked about J.N. Loughborough's efforts to haul a tent around, pitching it and preaching everywhere he could. And because to be a Sabbatarian Adventist preacher was essentially a vow of poverty, we learned how he and J.N. Andrews grew discouraged and moved to walk on Iowa. Finally, we talked about Ellen and James White's risky sleigh ride 200 miles through a brutal Midwest winter to reach the two men and encourage them to come back into ministry, which they did. We left Loughborough in Round Grove, Illinois, where he preached through the rest of the winter and received as his pay a whole $10 and a fur coat. Okay, we're all caught up. But before we begin today, I've made an executive decision. Since we have J.N. Loughborough and J.N. Andrews, I'm just going to call the former John Loughborough. It's just easier that way, and hopefully it will cut down in some of the confusion, and I'm sure he won't mind. We begin where we left off, Walk-On, Iowa. With James and Ellen White back in Michigan, James offered a rather blunt but cheerful assessment of the whole experience in the review. James named the leading families in Walk-On and then dutifully reported because he presumed the readers of the review were, quote, anxious to learn their present position. So James stated the problem. Quote, we were sad to find these brethren laboring under a mistake, end quote. The walk-on believers there thought it mighty suspicious that James had up and moved the review to Battle Creek. We don't know exactly why they thought this. Perhaps some thought it was a waste of money or an example of the autocracy of James White. Who knows? But James explained how running the press in those days was really a thankless job, how he worked crazy hours and had to use his own money to keep the whole thing going. The decision to move to Battle Creek was done by the believers in a general conference, he reminded them. On top of that, James told them that everyone had ample warning of the intention to move the review, and if there were any objections... They should have made them known then, otherwise just shut up. Well, that last bit of my words, not his. In the end, there was a lot of confession of sins and prayers together. James thought it was a really special moment, writing in the review, quote, We parted with our dear friends in tears, feeling the sweetest union with them, and grateful to the Lord for his merciful dealings to his erring children, end quote. The whole affair was supposed to have just been a misunderstanding that was cleared up when James had an opportunity to explain himself. Isn't that how it should work with Christians? Oh, but this wasn't over. It was far from over. Much of it had to do with the fact that the two leading families in Walk-On, that of Edward Andrews and Cyprian Stevens, were a wee bit unbalanced. You'll remember that way back in 1849, James and Ellen had to confront both men because they had a tendency toward fanaticism. For instance, after 1844, Edward Andrews had believed it a sin to work. 
He thought Jesus would come at any moment and didn't want to have any money or property to spare when Jesus showed up. Curiously, Edward Andrews did not think it a sin for other people to work and support him financially. Cyprian Stevens had his own problems. He got so bad, the local community had him declared insane for a little while, because you could do that back then. But the confrontation in Paris was ultimately a success, although Ed Andrews and his friend Cyprian harbored a deep, deep resentment for the whites. The next year, 1850, James and Ellen came and lived with Edward Andrews, who initially told them that they could stay for free. Well, there's free, and then there's free-ish. Edward only charged James a dollar a week for food, which wasn't really a bad deal, except he barely got any food. James describes having a potato with a few spoonfuls of milk and cornbread for a meal. And then James found out that there was a local guy in town who was staying at the tavern eating much, much better food for only a dollar fifty a week. And James began to feel ripped off. And you don't want to rip off James White. In the end, James and Ellen moved to Rochester, of course, and Andrews complained that he was cheated out of eight dollars. Eight whole American dollars. On the other hand, Maybe writing in the review the way James did about the error of the people in Wacon wasn't the smoothest method. Nobody likes their faults being explained publicly, but that was James's personality. A more diplomatic man might have just written that, oh, there were some misunderstandings in Wacon, but we cleared it all up and everyone's back on track. That way, everyone saves face. But that's not James's way, and it really wasn't the way of the movement either. After the believers realized in 1856 that they were this church of Laodicea in Revelation, that is a lukewarm, indifferent, apathetic kind of church, a constant stream of letters arrived at the review from members who confessed their faults and asked for prayers. A man named Alfred Minor admitted that he tried to run from God by drawing around me friends that deny the coming of our Savior. Another man wrote, we have felt for some time that we were in a cold, backslidden state, almost destitute of the Spirit of the Lord. There was no real reason to write such things and explain them to your fellow believers. But the movement was very much like a family, and I don't mean that as a cliché. People had no problem writing in and sharing their faults. So perhaps James didn't think anything of his bluntness about the faults of the people in Wacom. After all, the whole point of his article was that reconciliation happened and we're all happy now. Though, of course, you know, there's a big difference between confessing your own faults and sharing the faults of others. But we just need to recognize that transparency was what this early movement was all about. There was no time for masks, for pretending, for posturing. Jesus was going to come soon and we need to be ready. This was not a movement for thin-skinned, super-sensitive people. You were an outsider as a Sabbatarian Adventist among Christians. And if James was traveling, it'd be posted in the paper. If there was a tent meeting somewhere, it was in the paper. If someone needed a book, they wrote to the paper. If there was a church meeting to decide an issue, the invitation was sent to everyone in the paper. If the review needed something, it was in the paper. If someone needed to apologize to someone far away, it was often in the paper. 
the paper was kind of like the dining room table that the family gathered around. Listen to what one lady wrote in the March 5, 1857 issue. I need not say, pray for me, for I know the children of God pray for each other. They can no more forget each other than the kind mother can forget her children. Many of us are like the younger members of a family. End quote. Families are frank with each other. Even still, James might have learned from past experience that he should have been a bit more suspicious that bygones were never truly bygones with these guys. Cyprian Stevens was the father-in-law to both J.N. Andrews and Uriah Smith. And if you're figuring that out, they both married sisters. In fact, Uriah Smith got married later in 1857, just some months after the whole walk-on thing. The sisters seem to channel some of their dad's disillusion about the whites, and though we don't know exactly what happened, it seems that even J.N. Andrews and Uriah Smith started to grumble a little bit about James. In the case of Uriah Smith, it seems that James was critical on how he handled aspects of the review. Even Alan White admitted that James should handle things a little bit more delicately, and while James managed to patch things up with the younger preachers, the overall grumbling in the Andrews and Stevens family went on and on and on. Even after Cyprian Stevens died in 1858 by a rattlesnake bite, by the way, it went on. In 1861, this issue still wouldn't be over. That's when James wrote to E.P. Butler, clearly exasperated at how Edward Andrews could persist in a grudge. James explained the origin of the controversy to Butler, incredulous that Edward Andrews, after 11 years, was still looking for his $8. And even if James did owe him $8, didn't James more than make up for it and how he cared for his son, John Nevins? He gave John clothes, let him use his horse, and even gave him $50 in cash once. He helped clear the way for J.N. Andrews to write his book and then advertised it in the review. In the end, James writes, quote, Edward Andrews is the last man that walks the sod to make the base accusation that I altered a verbal contract to cheat him out of $8. I have no doubt but that he makes this statement in his ingratitude to try to sustain his unbelief in the visions of Ellen White, which have reproved him and his family, end quote. That really hit the nail on the head, because Edward Andrews' first encounter with Ellen White as a prophet was when she went in vision to rebuke him for his foolishness in 1849. It seems he spent the next 14 years trying to avoid what she said by discrediting her right to say it. Edward Andrews was, in some ways, far more damaging than others because he remained within the movement. He never broke with the movement to join the messenger party or any other offshoot. He never wrote his criticisms in the review. He seemed content just grumbling to others, never wanting to confront James or be confronted. And that's certainly an aggravating, frustrating kind of problem to solve for James and Ellen. How do you respond to someone who undermines you behind your back but repents whenever you confront them? But... In wrapping up the saga of the families from Walk-On and Paris, it should be noted that, in 1863, Edward Andrews once again confessed all the wrongs my cruel belief has ever heaped upon you. 
He would die two years after that, and that was that. Did he mean it? Well, it seems like this time he held his apology to the end. Okay, back to 1857. One more bit of Adventist DNA began that year, the investigative or pre-Advent judgment. This is one of those beliefs that many don't even know about, but is fairly controversial among others. It all started back in January, when Elon Everts, the man who took James and Ellen in his sleigh to walk on, was considering what it meant for the church to be Laodicean. He wrote to the Review, quote, I understand that judgment must be rendered before Christ comes, for when he comes, it will be to raise the righteous saints and change the living ones, end quote. In other words, when Jesus comes back, he's going to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. But in order for Jesus to know who's righteous or wicked, he'd have to previously judge who gets rewarded and who gets punished. Okay, fine. But when does this judgment begin? Everts then linked this idea to the 1844 message. Daniel 8.14 says that after 2,300 years, the sanctuary would be cleansed and owed to the Day of Atonement, which was a day of judgment for ancient Israel. Are you following so far? He realized that after 1844, the world was living in the Day of Atonement, a day filled with soul-searching and getting oneself right with God the Judge. It was a time when the temple was cleansed from the blood of all the sacrifices throughout the year. It was a solemn time for Israel. No work was to be done. The high priest would enter God's presence in the most holy place so that Israel would be cleansed. Those in Laodicea, those lukewarm, wishy-washy Christians, should wake up to the reality of judgment going on in heaven. Jesus is coming soon, and he is deciding who he will take and who he will leave behind when he comes. The decisions being made every day matter. The reaction in the review to this new idea, which really wasn't new as much as it was just connecting the dots that were already there, was positive. Someone wrote in and said, quote, I rejoice that my sins are going ahead to judgment, where they can be blotted out, end quote. Of course, no one meant to imply that one wasn't forgiven until Jesus came. Just this time of judgment before Jesus came was really the beginning of God's final plan to get rid of sin once and for all. That's what happened on the Day of Atonement. That's what that day was all about. James White chimed in on the subject at the end of January, heartily developed Everett's ideas, and made a solid case for the fact that judgment is even now going on in heaven. Jesus is coming soon, and we all want to be ready. One of the people helping get ready, of course, was John Loughborough. After spending the first few months of the year in Illinois and Wisconsin, well, he was still hurting for money. The believers raised a whopping 50 to $60 for him in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, which would have been great if he could have kept it. Apparently, after dropping the money on the table for Loughborough and specifically telling him to use the money for himself, John noticed his anxious host looking on, in Loughborough's words, eagle-eyed at the money. Loughborough then proceeded to read his mind, quote, Brother, it may appear to you that as you have been meeting tent expenses, you ought to have the money. The host replied, Yes, scoop the money off the table, and that was the last Loughborough saw of it. 
He moved on to Heidelston, Illinois, where he debated a Disciples of Christ preacher. There was apparently a little proverb made up that no one loved the debate more than a Disciples of Christ preacher except a Sabbatarian Adventist. Well, after four days, the story goes, the audience petitioned Loughborough to end it because the other preacher simply couldn't respond to his arguments. As a result, ten people began keeping the Sabbath. Loughborough had a downright bizarre experience as he took the tent and preached around Wisconsin. In one case, hecklers tried to disrupt his meetings, yelling about the law of Moses and mocking him while he preached, because, you know, hecklers are known for their knowledge of the Old Testament. On the second night, they escalated things. The hecklers got a lamb, cut off its ear, and then threw it in the tent. Loughborough says that after that, they tried to go knock down the tent the next day. They were discovered, he said, by which I would like to assume he means a flock of angry, earless sheep kicked the snot out of them. When autumn came, Loughborough headed back to Wacon to see his wife. What, did you just tense up when I said the word Wacon? Don't worry, because Loughborough went back in order to tell his wife that they should move to Battle Creek. Hey, everyone's doing it. As soon as they arrived in the heavenly city, James White greeted them with $250 that believers had raised so that they could get a house. And I understand it, that if you move to Battle Creek today, nobody will be there to greet you with $250. But it would be nice. Loughborough was also greeted with the news that they really needed his help building a second church there in Battle Creek. The first church had been built in 1855 when the Whites got there. It was only 400 square feet large, so it maybe sat about 40 people. Well, this is Battle Creek, and with so many Adventists moving there, they kind of needed a bigger building. So the church had a general conference in April and decided to build a place that could seat between 300 and 400 people. They asked Loughborough's help in building it, some 1,200 square feet or so, or three times larger than the previous one. We know that they did fit 250 people into this bad boy, but not whether this was its final capacity or not. Even still, that's a pretty good deal when it only cost $500. Well, back in March 1857, James had decided that the Review needed a steam press to replace the hand press that they had been using. With a hand press, you had to set the type, ink it, then lay the paper over top and pull a lever. When you finished one side, you'd have to reset the type and do the other side, which I'm sure was a lot of fun. James told his readers that it took them three days a week to print the Review not to mention the youth's instructor or anything else that they wanted to print. Plus, everyone was moving to steam, and if the movement wanted to stay competitive, they had better get on board. The final cost would be about 2000 or $3,000, but the good news is all the tracks and books they printed on the steam press would be cheaper than the hand press. The General Conference of April 10th, chaired by Joseph Bates, of course, approved the review's plan to get a steam-powered press. The names of those who pledged $100 or more were published in the paper. Oh yeah, James White knows how to fundraise. And when he got enough money, James ran up to Boston and had the steam press installed by the end of July. But they still needed to get an engine, which he finally had by October. In just seven months from when he first 
had the idea. The review entered the industrial age, putting along with its three-horsepower engine. Oh, yeah. On his way to pick up the steam press, James suggested he meet with believers in tents along the way. While the primary goal of the tents was to reach the lost, he said, it would be good for the believers to get together under a tent once a year. Which, you know, sounds a little bit like a recipe for a camp meeting. Another time. Another time. The conference did a couple of other interesting things. In dealing with the problem of preachers' pay, for instance, they recommended that all the churches in a state, in this case Michigan, raise money collectively to pay the preachers who visit. So a committee was set up to oversee this fund. And to this day, Seventh-day Adventist ministers are paid by their state conferences, not by local congregations. This was a first big step in the direction of organization in this issue, even though at this point it seemed to just apply to those preachers running around behind tents. Do you think it's a coincidence that six months after this decision, John Loughborough moved to Michigan, where he also worked all winter? Yeah, I don't think so either. The conference also authorized a German translation of a tract on the Sabbath, undoubtedly because the work in Wisconsin and Iowa, heavy areas for German immigration, required it. Some one in ten Wisconsinites were German, for instance. Meanwhile, James White reported that the membership in Michigan had grown by around 50% since he had moved the review there. He appreciated how as soon as someone in Michigan was converted, they were almost always ready to sacrifice for the cause. James even invited believers from the East who had been having a hard time convincing people to come work in Michigan. Michigan could have been, for Adventists, what Utah had become for Mormons, except for reasons we're just not going to get into right now. But there was definitely that call to bring preachers to come to Michigan where the harvest, James said, was ready. But even with the better financial support for people like Loughborough, it was hard going in the winter of 1857. Part of the reason is that the U.S. economy took a hit in what is known as the Panic of 1857. There really wasn't one thing that caused it, but just a series of terrible events for the economy. Case in point, the SS Central America sank, carrying 30,000 pounds of California gold, gold that the government needed because the dollar was on the gold standard at the time. No gold, no cash. The poor Central America ran into a hurricane and sank on September 11th. 425 people died as well. It was considered one of the worst naval disasters in American history at the time. People feared what implications this might have for the currency, and many made a run on the banks. To make matters worse, the banks had overextended themselves in lending money to the railroads, which required a ton of money, as they feverishly laid track to keep people moving out west. Now I want to get off track here for a moment because the story is great. The captain of the Central America went down with the ship. His daughter would go on to marry Chester Arthur, who later became president. But the story doesn't end there. A man named Tommy Thompson, seriously, you can't make this stuff up, found the ship in 1988. He managed to recover the gold, now worth $150 million, 
only to be sued by his investors and employees in 2005 for not giving them their fair share. Naturally, Tommy Thompson ran off with his secretary and went underground. And by underground, I meant he lived in a multi-million dollar mansion in Florida with 12 cell phones and a book about how to evade the police. After someone finally spotted him, he and his secretary girlfriend ran again, this time staying at a Hilton in Boca Raton at $224 a night for over a year. You can't afford such rooms when you have stolen a lot of gold money. So, yeah, they found him in January 2015, after eight years on the run. See, isn't history awesome? Uh, so, yeah, the economy in late 1857 had taken a dive. The movement clearly needed a better, more comprehensive system of dealing with this. In March 1858, Ellen White told James, quote, The Lord has shown me that if you call the ministers together and have J.N. Andrews come from walk-on and hold a Bible class, you will find in the scriptures a complete plan for supporting the ministry, end quote. James did as he was told, and in April the ministers gathered in Battle Creek. They concluded that the system of tithing in the Bible was still valid. Nine months later, Sister Betsy was born. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>